Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey, yeah, good, thank you. I am by turns too hot and too <laughs> too excited with the dose of uh, of a workup fever, as we discussed mm, last week. It's not broken uh, yet. No, it has not broke. I've not broken this fever. And um, I called it last week. I said that England would definitely win. Um, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And here we are. We stand on, you know, at the summit of our nation's footballing achievement, looking down on the nation's quivering uh, with fear beneath us, thinking, I hope they win because we could easily beat them in the final. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's um, like that aside, I'm over uh, any kind of hot weather now. I'm happy yeah. for it to go and fuck off, and please just bring the snow back. I'll even take a, like a few days of drizzle. I, this is just not good for my uh, delicate Scandinavian complexion. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the heat over here has been pretty bad the last couple of days, but I mean, not as bad as like the West Coast, where LA apparently is just soup. Uh, like all, all the buildings are just melting <laughs> by the by the reports of what everyone's saying uh, online. But it has been quite warm. But the, the the one saving grace of Florida weather is that you're pretty much guaranteed some colossal rain like an hour or two after it gets really, really hot. As opposed mm. to, you know, uh, L.A. where when it gets really, really hot, it, you've got another five weeks of just kind of like crawling across hot asphalt before... And a tiny drop of rain falls. Mm. And we're not lizards. Um, yeah. We can't be dealing with this. So, yeah, um, I'm I'm kind of over it. Um, and, yeah, desperately want it to end. Yeah, much like the World Cup, which, uh, I mean, I mainly want it to end just because like, I can't take it anymore. I can't, I can't take the hope. <laughs> That's mm. what kills you. Yeah. Uh, getting, getting to the... To the semi-finals was way more than i expected and and also like you know i were talking about this beforehand like for the first two rounds i think there was like an 80 20 split between people who were saying like it's coming home ironically and earnestly and now it's kind of flipped the other way and yeah. i kind of feel like all of the the jokes and the memes uh which seem to have driven us uh, ironically to great success are now becoming kind of insufferable because everyone is smashing up the country and mm. random Ikeas. And yeah, it just kind of getting this all behind us, regardless of the result, seems like um, the best best thing for everyone's uh, safety. Mm, yeah, what we don't need is, you know, swathes of angry, repressed heterosexual men with their shirts off, like buoyed by a football team winning the World Cup, destroying everything. Because we, we, mm. uh, we just don't need it, like... The, the country's in a bad enough state as it is. And also, we don't need England to win because everyone will be like, well, if we won this, we can win Brexit. Yeah. Which yeah, is it, not a good it, look. Yeah, it's going to bolster bolster the wrong side. But, you know, uh, we don't have a Brexit secretary, secretary anymore, as we've just found out. Mm, so, breaking news. So uh, I guess everything's going fine. Everything must be in order. We don't need him anymore. Mm, Gareth so. Southgate will probably step up and do it. <laughs> and he'll just, uh, you know, take the dossier or whatever and just like toe punt it into the sea and just say, no, carry on as we were. Not legally binding. 
Yeah, he'll put on his formal waistcoat, not his coaching waistcoat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just imagine his uh, headshot being like Tobias Funke's with just like four different head, <laughs> like four different waistcoats. Like he's, uh, he's got a waistcoat for all seasons. Yeah, and Mr. Southgate, Sir Gareth, as I'm sure it's going to be very soon. Sure. Uh, if you need an idea for a title for your book, there you go. Waistcoat for all seasons. Mm. Yeah, so, I'd read it. <laughs> uh, it probably would be one of the only English sports biographies, autobiographies worth reading. Most of them are dreadful, whereas mm. he seems like uh, a genuinely nice man who's got an interesting story to tell, uh, particularly if he devotes like a whole chapter to that Pizza Hut commercial he did in the 90s. Yeah, he's also written a book, um, which is, I mean, I, I kind of skipped over the details of this, so none of this could be accurate, but I'll say it anyway, because that's my style. He wrote a book with the goalkeeping coach at Middlesbrough mm. uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, just about how good friends they were. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> seems like something and it's called something like his name the, the goalkeeping coach's name is something like Andy Woodford or something it's like Woody and Southgate just good friends like this so I don't know whether it's like you know laying the groundwork for a sitcom mm-hmm. or you know either way there's going to be people clamouring for, for for content <laughs> after the World Cup they, people won't be able to get enough of Gareth Southgate it'll be it'll be like endorsing everything and there'll be spin-offs there'll be there'll be a Gareth Southgate expanded universe <laughs> a cinematic universe of Gareth Southgate. Can you imagine? Southgate yeah. and Woody, just good friends. The musical. Yep. <laughs> uh, that brings us on to our first news story this week. The way I've decided we're going to structure the news segment this week is we're going to go through all of the possible emotions, starting with the negative ones like anger and sadness, mm-hmm. and then moving to kind of like the lighter news story. So let's start with the story about Scarlett Johansson, who, uh, you know, great actress, been in a lot of really, really good movies made some very questionable decisions in recent years, the most recent one being the decision to sign on to a new movie with her Ghost in the Shell director, Rupert Sanders. Mm -hmm. So sticking with the creme de la creme of Hollywood's talent to make a movie called Rub and Tug, which is a movie about uh, the life of Dante Tex Gill, who was a trans man who operated a bunch of massage parlours in Pittsburgh in the 70s and 80s, which were believed to be you know, kind of brothels. Uh, So it's a kind of a great story, but uh, there's been a lot of pushback against this for the obvious fact that Scarlett Johansson is not a trans man. So people said, well, this isn't, (laughs) this isn't right. She shouldn't be playing a trans character because she's a a cis woman. And then her, her representation didn't exactly help. Uh, I think someone was really trying to get fired because then when they were asked for kind of a comment on this said, Tell them that they can be directed to Jeffrey Tambor, Jeff- Jared Leto, and Felicity Huffman's reps for comment. Mm-hmm. Which is basically saying, if you're mad at me, talk to these other people you're mad at, because everyone's mad at uh, Jared Leto for being playing a trans character in Dallas Buyers Club. There's a, there's a lot of stuff around Jeffrey Tambor, um, but, but people were not happy about him taking on that role in Transparent. Uh, and Felicity Huffman, and there, there probably were complaints at the time, but, you know, it was... 13 years ago at this point so as far as the internet's concerned that's like the 1700s but yeah it's it's all it's bad and bad it's bad all the way around that all the way down that uh scotty johnson has agreed to sign on to this role and then kind of doubled down on it in the kind of the most dickish way possible yeah it's you'd think that she would have learned 
just about being so tone deaf and insensitive and that perhaps even if she was going to take on this, that the PR guys would have been like, right, okay, we know this is going to be a hot topic. Mm. Let's, let's approach it this way. Not like, ah, oh, just drive this flaming car through this window <laughs> of this orphanage because that's kind of what happened because I'm not really sure whose idea it was to announce it that way and to defend it that way. Mm. Yeah, like I say, someone who probably wanted to get fired because, mm. or someone who just assumed like, oh, no one's going to care about this uh, because, and and if this had been announced like five years ago, probably wouldn't have got quite that much attention just because the atmosphere around the kind of uh, issues of trans representation have have really the politics around it have changed a lot in in recent years and people. Uh, frankly take them a lot more seriously than they did a few years ago which is great and you know kind of an important step for any marginalized groups that people actually care about how they're depicted in media but you know i think there are probably a lot of people in hollywood who haven't caught on to that fact and think that oh it's fine like mm. people were fine with uh, felicity huffman they'll be fine with this and it's like mm, no you probably need to work a lot harder with this sort of stuff and i'd also perhaps point out that not the best idea to announce it during pride month Yes, yeah, just at the, the tail end of Pride Month. They're like, what a gift. Mm. What a gift to the LGBTQ community. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and also it's, it looks especially bad when you consider one of the most acclaimed TV shows of this current season or mid-season, you know, the kind of the endless TV season that we now have, is the FXO Pose, which is a show about the kind of drag scene in New York in the 80s and 90s, which is notable for being something of a break breakthrough show for having uh, trans writers and trans actors on the show there's lots of you know it's it's got more trans representation on every level than probably any american tv show ever uh and kind of clearly saying hey you know there are trans actors out there that can come in and work on these projects and can do great work why not reach out to them and you know the the and the argument that people would use again for for rub and tug would be like oh you know she's a scarlett hansen is a big name she'll sell tickets and like there's some there's probably some truth to that but you know like as cynical arguments go like you could also say well you could probably get a lot of press from saying hey we're making a movie about this trans man from history and we've cast a trans man in the lead mm -hmm. like that seems like a really good way to get yourself a lot of attention and press that would be in tone a lot more positive than what they're starting off with now. Cause really and truthfully this film, if it even gets made, like I think there's, um, I don't know if this outrage would be enough to kill it, but certainly it'd be enough to put the, any kind of like response it gets when it comes out through a very specific prism, which is people, you know, not, exactly wanting to praise it because of the considerable issues that it raises just through its mere existence. Mm, I mean, the the kind of kickback on Ghost in the Shell was pretty significant, but I'm not mm. sure if that was 100% why that film failed. I mean, it was a bit of a good part of it. Yeah, it certainly didn't... Uh, it didn't kind of, like, cover itself in glory through that... Just the mere, the mere fact that they made it with her in that role and then again just kind of like trying to shrug off the criticism and not really take it seriously you know mm. it, it it probably wouldn't have done that well anyway because 
there's not a huge market for Americanized versions of anime because fans of anime already have the anime. So <laughs> why why would you want to do it done again, but probably worse? Mm. Uh, and But outside of fans of the anime, like Ghost in the Shell doesn't mean anything. So it probably wasn't exactly a surefire hit. But mm. like, uh, but there's no guarantee that like if they had cast Rinko Kikuchi in the lead role of Ghost in the Shell, that it would have done any worse. Uh, like, I don't think having Scarlett Johansson really added all that much to the bottom line of that movie. No, no. Well, they didn't. Our next story, and again, going through the spectrum of emotions, uh, we're going to kind of uh, into sadness now. We lost a few great artists this week. We lost the cinematographer Robbie Muller, who worked a lot with Jim Jarmusch and Vim Vendors, uh, you know, who shot a bunch of amazing movies, uh, including things like uh, Repo Man and Down by Law and Wings of Desire. You know, he, he shot these absolute classics. Uh, and we also lost Cloud Landsman, who is the documentary filmmaker most famous for his colossal Holocaust documentary, Shoah, which is uh, one of the greatest and most powerful and punishing documentaries ever made. Mm, yeah, big ones uh, this week. Uh, Robbie Muller, someone who is responsible for kind of teaching me what cinematography is mm. uh, when I was getting into films in my kind of mid to late teens and picked up a cinema club video uh, VHS tape of Paris, Texas mm. um, and watched it and kind of was in awe of the the various um, textures and feels of all these different locations and the idea that you could shoot outdoor light like that, um, which he did in a lot of his films. But then also when you follow up with the other stuff he shot and watch something like Until the End of the World or, um, you know, uh, Paris, Texas or The American Friend and then put it alongside something that's shot like Down by Law or Wings of Desire that is very much black and white, that is clearly the work of the same person, but a completely different like format and feel. And, you know, the guy was a, an incredible artist um, that, that he very much never got stuck doing one thing. Mm. Um, and I like the idea that the man who did Repo Man uh, also did Paris, Texas. There's this kind of weird... He feels a little bit like a kind of Harry Dean Stanton-type character wandering through all these genres, <laughs> kind of tying them together with his artistry. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I also think it's fascinating when you look at people like him who had these long-running relationships with multiple directors and how, like, he's not like a Janusz Kaminski who you look at his work with Spielberg and then you look at his work with other people and there's kind of a through line, like maybe with Spielberg he's working in more different genres, but it's still kind of like, it still all kind of looks the same. Whereas Robbie Muller, you know, he had these these two relationships with uh, Jarmusch and Vin Vendors over many decades and many, many movies. I think he directed, he worked with Vendors on like 10 or 12 of his movies and like six or seven Jarmusch movies is really interesting seeing how he worked with those artists to very, very different ends, but still delivering like really great work that was perfect for the thing he was working on. So he, he was someone who was just an amazing craftsman who brought something to all of the movies he worked on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's quite the CV. Um, you mm. could... Um, explore a lot of those filmmakers' best work 
Jarmusch and, and Benders in particular through the lens of Robbie Muller. Mm, absolutely. And then, uh, yeah, Landsman, as I said, directed Showa and a bunch of great documentaries, many of which I think were made, at least in some part, from a lot of the footage he shot for Showa because that was a movie that was probably like a decade in the making. You know, he travelled all over the world to interview Holocaust survivors and Nazis, you know, former Nazis who he often covertly recorded in his uh, interviews. So, uh, and got these amazing testimonials about what the Holocaust was and the, and offered a insight into what that whole process, you know, the, the whole experience of what the Holocaust was in a way that, I think other people have kind of come close through documentaries and some have tried to do through fiction, but I really don't think any film about the Holocaust gets anywhere near the, the level of the of power that Shoa has, uh, you know, like not just in terms of his introduction, his uh, interviews and the way in which the story is, is kind of told incrementally, incrementally of how the Holocaust was carried out, but also cinematically, you know, his, his, focus on trains you know there's that very very famous and eerie shot of the camera slowly moving along the train tracks towards i think belson or maybe auschwitz uh, i think it's belson uh and just like the the horrifying inevitability of that feeling of a camera slowly moving towards this factory of death uh it, he was a he was a real great artist and you know, a, a witness to history, you know, or, or or a chronicler of history that produced some some immensely powerful images. Mm. He'll be kind of uh, remembered as the person who uh, defined that idea of the, mm. the, the the Holocaust documentary, the the kind of the the historical statement documentary that you look at Shoah as this kind of monolith something you have to tackle when you kind of uh, start learning about film and documentary form. And his, just that film on its own is going to cast uh, quite a long shadow. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, I think any, anyone who hasn't seen Shoah, obviously it is a, it's a monumental thing to watch because it's like nine hours long. And I mean, the Holocaust, it's, it's, it's heavy stuff. Like there's no two ways about it. Uh, unless you're Roberto Benigni, in which case you really shouldn't do it. Mm. But it is, I think, one of the most kind of essential works of cinema there is, one of the most essential works of history uh, and, of, and of journalism, really, uh, in terms of taking these stories and forcing the viewer to really live with them uh, and to really acknowledge that these things happened. Uh, and, you know, given terrifying renewed relevance even today mm. so so uh yeah if, if you haven't seen show uh it's probably probably a good time to, to catch up on it mm -hmm. so we'll move into kind of the lighter stories now and i think probably the story that has most delighted me because of how completely insane it is is the michael flatley vehicle blackbird <laughs> which is an action movie starring michael flatley the river dancer himself mm-hmm in what appears to be his attempt at making a Bond movie that is all, like, self-financed and the poster for which debuted on the line this week and, you know, a bunch of promotional materials and everything. And, uh, yeah, I've just I've just really enjoyed seeing people try and come to grips with the existence of this movie. Yeah, I mean, 
you're selling it a little short, Ed, <laughs> because um, not only is he in it, he wrote, directed, and produced it. Yeah, it's a passion this, project. It's, this it's is his cane. Yeah, he's he's gone full Wiseau on this, um, <laughs> and uh, coming along for the ride uh, is uh, Eric Roberts, everyone's favourite ham, and uh, Patrick Bergen, um, the other Robin Hood. Um, <laughs> he, I, I mean, I was convinced it wasn't real. Yeah. Um, but then um, uh, there was a, a Twitter thread quite a while ago, uh, maybe a year ago, of a guy who was tweeting pages of Michael Flatley's autobiography and mm-hmm. um, <laughs> bit by bit. And I mean, it's hilarious because the man's um, own kind of self-aggrandizing uh, vision of himself as this kind of like womanizing um, uh, kind of messiah is kind of funny. And mm-hmm. is uh, as soon as I kind of put those two together, I was like, no, this isn't fake. This is genuine. He has made his own Bond movie. Uh, with himself in the lead, I cannot wait to see it. It is mm-hmm. just just pipped Gotti in my <laughs> must see list for this year because you know the idea. I mean, you know, it could be good. It could be yeah. an une- unexpected <laughs> breakout. But the idea that um, a man who's uh, who's who's kind of principal um, talents are dancing um, mm. from the, from the knee down um, uh, <laughs> in a very briefly popular uh, kind of Irish jig. Uh, from the from the mid nineties, uh, I mean, it, probably culturally, it's quite popular for hundreds of years. But you know, he kind of uh, sexed it up. Um, mm. But that does not make you a filmmaker. Uh, no. It doesn't really even qualify you to do much else other than be a dancer. I don't want to like shit on people and say, you know, you can't do this, you can't achieve your dreams, Michael. Michael, think about <laughs> things before you do this. Um, but I'm just glad it exists because no matter what, I'm going to enjoy the hell out of it. Yeah, cinema is an art of art form of dreams. Uh, and I think that no, nothing more fully realizes the the true majesty of the form than the fact that Blackbird will soon be available for people to watch. Uh, and also, yeah, I've come so close to watching Gotti multiple times over the last two weeks. I, I don't usually pay to go and watch a movie that I know is bad, but the overwhelming response to it online has made me think maybe I should make an exception for this time because it sounds uh, like a truly special experience mm. and and certainly feels like every bad movie podcast is going to get to it eventually so you know really should do my homework uh, mm. before uh, the flop house cover it yeah I think it'll probably wind up on Netflix sooner rather than later mm-hmm. it'll kind of be uh, uh, expunged to the depths of Netflix and kind of hidden away in the uh, the outer reaches. Mm. Or maybe you'll get up on end up on YouTube. Uh, maybe Sony will put it up there. <laughs> yeah, by accident. This is a, a, a fun story this week uh, in which um, a film that was uh, hacked from Sony servers in the famous hack of 2014, a film called Carly the Killer, um, um, that was, I don't know, really know much about it. I don't think anyone does, but the idea that they've held it back because, you know, it, it kind of leaked online. Um, and their, their their intention was to release it straight to um, kind of video on demand um, and a kind of like streaming service. But um, they tried to put the trailer up for it on YouTube on Tuesday and uh, accidentally uploaded the entire movie. Um, <laughs> and it was there for about five hours and was viewed 11,000 times in that five hours. The entire film was viewed 11,000 times. Um, and I just think that's quite funny for uh, mm. people who are just trying to get ahead of the pirates by doing their job for them. Yeah, I mean, 
how, how do you even notice that like the buffering time for when you're uploading the video is <laughs> taking so long because like you know i've uploaded stuff onto youtube where it's like you know a little like three five minute short film that you've made with friends and it's mm. like it take it takes like half an hour or so but like a feature length movie being active accidentally uploaded i mean that's gonna take a little while like that's you've got a lot of opportunity to realize hmm this is taking a while like you're not gonna think oh maybe the broadband's kind of playing up mm. I mean, why, why even give the person who was doing it the option just give them one <laughs> file don't give them like say right dave the work experience kid he's there you've got two files here one of them is the film that's the one you don't want to do it's the trailer mm. the one that says trailer on the file name trailer dot mov just just update that <laughs> not the other one i've been giving you both of them but just just put just put the trailer up and you'll be like yeah i got it and then it'll be like ringing. You did want me to not put the trailer up right, uh, and he was like, "Yeah, because that's what I've done." And then, yeah, <laughs> well, there you go. I don't, I don't really understand that's happened. It could be a big uh, publicity stunt to kind of like you know give the film. I mean, eleven thousand people have watched this movie. It's probably more than they would have done had it been released in cinemas. Mm, yeah, it's just it's just nice to see the studio still haven't quite figured out how the internet works. Because I mean, this this is my sec. This has to be my second favorite YouTube fuck up after the time they put the mummy trailer with the wrong sound effects up, <laughs> which is still yeah. still the funniest thing I've ever <laughs> I've ever seen. All the temp sound effects, uh, or, or missing sound effects entirely, and the weird fake Tom Cruise screen, sc- <clears throat> scream. So this isn't quite up to that level in terms of sheer comedy value, but certainly in terms of uh, a studio completely fucking up. And also, I think wasn't that also Sony? Uh, no, that I would think be, so. That was maybe no. Universal. Universal is the dark universe, isn't it? It's the dark universe. Yeah, oh, can't wait for that. Yeah, they're still still, still, still on. waiting. <laughs> yeah, still waiting for for Russell Crowe's Hyde and Jekyll movie. Uh, and also, I don't. I have no idea if this was a real thing, but someone at some point tweeted about the possibility that Channing Tatum was meant to be starring in a new version of Phantom of the Opera, where he was an EDM DJ. <laughs> and, like oh, I have dear. no I, I have no idea. I tried looking it up to see if this was a real movie that was ever in any stage of production. Uh but apparently I couldn't find a single trace of it and I was so disappointed because I genuinely would love to see that happen and uh, if it was going to be part of the the dark universe I think it would have been interesting to see how it would have fit in with uh, the kind of the big action movie stuff that all the others seem to be geared towards. Well, wasn't Johnny Depp going to be was he the invisible man? Yeah, well, he really is now. Yeah, yeah. No uh, no makeup required. Yeah, and uh, Javier Bardem going to be the Wolfman? Or was he going to be Frankenstein? Oof, fuck knows. These are all terrible ideas. Yeah, why yeah they, just... At least we got that one... At least we got that one awkward photo shoot out of them where they were clearly all photoshopped together and had been shot separately. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, I, I can't say it was one that uh, I was particularly excited by and uh yes i although i think that it peaked with that mummy trailer with the temp sound effects <laughs> there was no way it would ever the actual film would ever top that yeah and our final news story this week and a, a, a kind of a very lovely one and certainly one that hits close to home for us the musical stage musical everybody's talking about jamie which uh, debuted at sheffield's own crucible uh, last year in january and february of last year i believe and was seen by pretty much everyone i know it seems uh and was much beloved by uh, everyone who saw it has moved to the west end and they had a kind of simulcast 
screening of it where they they kind of like streamed a live performance of it into into cinemas across the UK and it was so popular that it was the number one film at the box office for that day which uh, is kind of feels like a really lovely certainly a lovely Sheffield based success mm. uh, but also is quite I mean this will lead on to our main topic but it's a really interesting success story and and show case for the ways in which uh, you know kind of cinema and the notion of what cinemas are for uh, is changing Mm, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I was one of the people who went to see it. And my wife had seen it on stage in the West End. Uh, it did feel weird, you know, sitting in a Sheffield cinema watching a play about Sheffield being performed on a stage in London, being beamed <laughs> back to Sheffield. But yeah, it was uh, sold out in the showroom downstairs, both big cinemas. They had five screenings of it at the uh, the Light Cinema in town. It was uh, very, very popular in Sheffield, but also all over. Because I think, you know, it's it won a lot of uh, Olivier Awards mm. um, this year. So it is quite the hot ticket on the West End anyway. Um, but it just goes to show that, like, a lot of these kind of stage-to-screen things are, you know, pretty popular. It's not something that has just been experimented with. Um, it's something that is now part of the regular programming of all cinemas, pretty much. All yeah. kind of um, independent. So I think that probably speaks to how expensive it is to go and see something on the West End. Uh, it can't be too long before we get Hamilton uh, kind of broadcast to, to cinemas, uh, making it even more accessible to um, the people who can't get down to that. And speaking of that accessibility of Hamilton, uh, my friend went to see it the other day and they sat next to someone who was an American who said, I've flown to England to watch it because it was cheaper than getting Broadway tickets. That sounds about right. Yeah, I can attest <laughs> to that. Pretty pricey, but a good show. So I Yeah, it's, it's all right. It's, it's okay. It's doing okay for itself. Mm. That boycott uh, started <laughs> by Mike Pence has really not taken its toll. Overrated. <laughs> I hear it's very overrated. But yeah, I think that that's a that's a really lovely story about everybody everybody's talking about Jamie, everybody's talking about everybody's talking about Jamie. <laughs> yeah. Um uh, including us. Uh and it, as I said, it gets it onto our subject, which um I think have we even thought of a title for this? I think we were jokingly saying what is cinema. Yeah, but... it, it, this whole thing was kind of spurred on by noted exorcist fan, uh, Mark mm-hmm. Kermode, who put a tweet out kind of fairly innocuously like last week or the week before last that we'd read and kind of raised an eyebrow and he was just mm. a kind of a, a kind of a off the cuff remark and the quote the quote uh, reads thus uh, a cinema without a projectionist is not a cinema it is a sweet shop with a video screen mm. and kind of like the first I read it and I kind of laughed and then I kind of processed it and then I was like oh, you know, maybe cinemas have kind of gone a bit downhill. And then I was like, oh, actually, that's kind of not cool, man, what you're saying. And, like, I don't really know how uh, kind of how far his tongue was buried in his cheek uh, Mm. when he said it, but it kind of got us thinking. But um, before, um, you know, you and I get a chance to speak about it we thought we'd kind of bring in some some big hitters some experts and we're lucky enough in sheffield uh to be the home of uh cinema for all uh, an organization that uh is kind of organizes um and oversees kind of uh, and helps film societies and uh, community cinemas uh show films and get hold of equipment and all this kind of stuff um so they're based in sheffield and i managed to get a quick half an hour this week to speak to uh jack chell and abby standish 
from um, Cinema for All about Mr. Kermo's tweet. Um, and here's what went down. Would you like to start by telling us who you are and what you do at Cinema for All? Yeah, I'm Jack Chow. And I'm Abby Standish. Uh, we work at Cinema for All, which is the national organisation that supports volunteer-led cinema in the UK. So anybody who's putting on a film screening in their community on a voluntary basis, maybe in a village hall, a library, a school, we help them out. So we get them films, we get them equipment, and we give them lots of advice as That's well. That's right. <laughs> mm, and how big or small do these organisations tend to be? There are a big range, really. You can have people uh, screening films to about 26 people, but then you can have people screening films to 300, 400, 500 plus. Yeah, we just got some numbers, some audience numbers in from a group in Briarfield in Lancashire, and they just got 900 people um, at an outdoor screening. And yeah, like Abby says, sometimes we have groups that have really, really small capacity cinemas, um, like Mini Cine in Leeds, which just has 26 seats. So... Yeah, it really, really varies, and some are very, very rural, in which case they're the only opportunity for people to see films where they live, and some are very urban, in which case they might be showing slightly more out-of-the-box stuff. So you do deal with kind of like the cinemas that are brick-and-mortar uh, buildings that um, are smaller and have a more niche appeal, and also um, what used to probably be called film societies, I guess, or community yes, cinemas? Well, Definitely. Well, they're still called film societies, and I think a lot of groups call themselves film societies still. But I think there's a move towards calling yourself something that's a bit more, uh, maybe modern, I suppose is the word. Either community cinemas, or some groups call themselves a social cinema. Uh, Mm -hmm. Some of them don't even call themselves cinema at all. So we've got a group that set up in Warrington really recently called CineWire, because Warrington is sometimes called The Wire. Um, I think it's a really cute yeah. name, so they call themselves all sorts of stuff now, don't they? Yeah, and also we represent groups who will just choose a venue that might not be a traditional cinema, but some groups do operate in uh, buildings that already are cinemas, big ones and independent ones. Right, okay, okay. Um, and generally speaking, um, kind of how many of these groups are there in the country? Like We're, we're talking about... a a small-ish proportion of people who go to the cinema do it this way? Would I be right in saying that? Well, we represent 1,200 groups. Um, that I know, there's so many, um, which is incredible. I think it's that number's doubled in about the last six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. So I think it's more accessible and more easy to set up your own film screenings now. So it's easy to get the kit, it's easy to get a hold of the films, um, and I think a lot of younger people are doing it now. It used to be something that almost exclusively retired people did, mm-hmm. um, and a bit more in the countryside, and now it's kind of coming into the cities a lot more, um, and, and people that are perhaps in their 20s, 30s, 40s are doing it now as well. So loads of people, loads of people are doing it now. Yeah. I think there are probably a lot more that we don't know about. They're yeah, this is doing it. it a bit bit dodgily <laughs> yeah there's but, but innocently or not yeah. but yeah there, there's that only 1200 that we know of that we that we help but there's bound to be hundreds and hundreds more out yeah. there that we just don't know about yet mm. um do you think um and you're right you, you'll know the answer to this i guess um the 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 rise in film societies and more kind of like bespoke screenings is a direct reaction to the kind of multiplex, the rise of the multiplex and and perhaps trips to the cinema becoming um, slightly less special? Yeah, well, I think trips to the cinema now are 
so expensive especially if there's a couple of you especially if you've got a family it's becoming one of those things that's not a regular occurrence it's one of those special trips that's maybe you know you know when you're a kid in the 90s and you would go uh, ice skating and that was something you did rarely when it was somebody's birthday and I think some of uh, when families go to the cinema it's kind of that kind of expense and it prices a lot of people out whereas a community cinema the average cinema ticket price is only about it's about £4.60 so people can afford to go more often and they can afford to take a riskier choice as well they can choose to go and see a film that they might not know about or might not read a lot about whereas if it's very expensive to go to the cinema you kind of want to go to a sure bet you want to know that it's it's going to be a good film you don't want to waste your hard-earned money so i think cinemas community cinemas allow you to be a bit more of a risk taker with your cinematic choices in the way that people used to do people used to go to the cinema like all the time yeah we were just interviewing some but a lady in her 90s who's part of the film society who is an incredible person and she'll be on the podcast but um we had her in conversation with one of our members of staff who's who's in her 20s saying that, you know, we would go to the cinema on birthdays and special trips and celebrations, so it would be a few times a year. And uh, the lady in her 90s said, oh, well, in my younger youth, tw- in the 20s, 30s, 40s, we'd be going pretty much every weeknight, every, every evening to go and see a film uh, because it was a bit of an event, you know, it's a bit of a vaudeville thing going on, also a bit more accessible and cheaper. And they were in pretty much every local area rather than across town, you had to get three buses to get in. Mm. So that brings us, I guess, circuitously to uh, Mr. Kermode's comments um, that a cinema without a projectionist is not a cinema, it's a sweet shop with a video screen. With the groups that you deal with and your everyday uh, kind of bread and butter being people who exist in a world of exhibition without having a projectionist, I'm going to assume in a lot of cases, um, how do you react to something like that? Well... My initial reaction was like, hmm, yeah, in some cases, I agree with this. So I think just to take community cinemas out of the equation for a second, with some multiplexes, they let a lot of their projectionists go. Um, and you do kind of feel that when you go into the space that it's it's kind of lacking the skill, it's lacking the presentation. There's certain things that you would see when you used to go to the cinema that you don't see anymore. So you don't see the curtains coming in. They're less bothered about letterboxing and pillar boxing. So there is a presentation issue um, with a lot of multiplexes that does bother me. Um, So at first I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, I see his point. And then uh, quite very quickly after that, no, come on. People need access to cinemas. And if that means that we're perhaps not having a projectionist or a technician on site in in the the way that it used to be, I'm not sure that matters so much. So a lot of our community cinemas will operate by, this is oversimplifying it, but they press play on a DVD or a Blu-ray player Mm -hmm. and they're able to bring film to people who would not normally get to see film together in their community in a safe space for a reasonable cost. So it's kind of community cinema democratizes that and if mm. and if we're kind of sacrificing having a projectionist or a technician then I don't think that matters too much. Yeah, I think I think the projectionist is a, such a valuable role role and um it's an amazing skill. Um but as things have changed in cinema so has the way that they operate especially behind the scenes in terms of what a projectionist does. I mean even the multiplexes will have 
to what was just be a technician and they still have a role in being responsible for the films and then being on on time and collecting the dcps and stuff but yeah it's like as jack said it's less of a present continuation of, of something happening there and the cinema is so much more than it's a sum of all its parts really mm. it's not just one role or one aspect of the building i mean the way that we see films hasn't really changed in terms of we all stare at one screen in one direction um and it's dark everywhere and the screen is the only thing that is lit up so you are fully absorbed and that still happens uh, regardless of a projectionist mm. being there so whilst we totally value projectionist and think it's a wonderful trade as jack said accessibility is so important and the fact that it is becoming easier for um you know everyday people to just simply operate projection equipment so that everyone gets a chance to see a film in a special way is really important and think about your cinema trips even from childhood to now it's about getting the tickets and deciding what you're going to see and the crazy carpets they seem to plush everywhere and the beautiful seats (laughs) and perhaps even like the gas lights at the side or even just the little lamps Mm. the popcorn smell uh, the actual feel of the tickets, the trailers, it's its every single bit. The ushers. Yeah. Uh, we used to be ushers in a cinema, and so we totally value all, all the roles in the cinema, but um, it's so much more than one the one role. It's just some of its entire parts. Yeah, we, we saw a tweet a couple of days ago from Ava DuVernay, the director, and she said um, it's about movie ticket prices in America, and she says this is a big deal in conversations about cinema and access, don't get me started on the fact that many communities of colour don't have a movie theatre at all. Can't see Selma in Selma, no theatre there. Can't see straight out of Compton in Compton, no theatre there. So it, it's it's yeah, it's kind of sad that it's it's a trade that people people are kind of pushing to the side, um, and it was a skill, and I think that's really really important. But I don't think we should pretend that a cinema without a projectionist is just a sweet shop. Um, it offers so much more than that. Mm. And do you think? that I think, well, I think a large part of Mr. Kermode's beef was based pretty firmly in, like, format snobbery, um, which is, like you say, unimportant if you think about the the cinema trips you had uh, as a kid. I mean, like, when I went to see Home Alone, for example, um, that I'm pretty sure that was uh, shown on 35mm, but I wasn't there thinking, oh, the joy of watching this 35mm projection yeah. is fantastic. And then, um, you know, I, I just wanted to be in a room full of people who were laughing, um, and that's kind of what cinema is to me. Now, I've also, I do also appreciate the skill that goes into projection, and I understand about what 35mm projection um, and exhibition looks like it can look like I should say because I've seen some dreadful 35 mil uh, exhibition Um, so really it's it's format snobbery in a sense to me is meaningless because it's about how it's done I've seen good DCP projection I've seen terrible film projection Um, I just want to see good projection full stop yeah Yeah, that's it presentation is really important it's all about that cinematic film going experience that is different from when you just stick something on at home on the television Mm. it's it and some of that comes from the presentation of how it's projected um but like you say we we develop those appreciations for format over time if you're a bit of a cinephile you're a bit bit of a film fan like you say you're not going to know 35 mil when you're a kid but now it's part of the texture of our childhood a little bit but it's just you can't get too snobby about format because 
again, why do we go to the cinema? We all have different reasons. The majority is to see a great story together with other people as a shared experience. It's not really about uh, whether it was on film or digital. And it, it takes the conversation even further back because more films get to be seen because of digital abilities to film mm. and therefore be projected that way. Whereas 35 mil just costs too much money yeah. to, to actually get the film made. Yeah, I mean, our groups largely screen on Blu-ray and um, I, I think Blu-ray looks great on a big screen. Yeah. I think that some of the, the dark bits, the blackest blacks on a Blu-ray look as good as if it's a, if it's a, a DCP projection. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. And, and it's cheaper. It means that the cinema tickets are cheaper. And that, at the end of the day, is the most important thing, making it available and accessible for audiences to come together, as Abby said, to watch film as a shared experience. Exactly. And, and also, if you think about... Um, there's no need to worry because there will always be a cinema who are more of a put projection at the forefront. That's part yeah. of their experience. So the showrooms still show a lot of 35 mil and yeah. will every, a lot of cinemas still always chase the best possible format in terms of the presentation, which is great. And even community cinemas do that. Yeah. But it's, you, you know you're not going to run out of cinemas who will be screening 35 mil or who will have DCP or who will have projectionists because in a way that get, helps them create a niche market for themselves so the people that are looking for that can go and find that. Yeah. Uh, but that all comes at a price because you have to staff somebody that can have that skill Yeah. and then that might inc include an increase in ticket price to reflect that. Yeah, I think a lot of our groups... Um, they pick up the skills quite quickly to do with presentations. So we talked about presentation being so important before. Um, a, a lot of our groups really put a lot of effort into mm. making it look great on screen. So they'll put a lot of effort into blackout. They'll make sure it's not letterbox or pillarbox. They'll make sure that, you know, no Blu-ray menu, no DVD menu mm. is going to be shown in advance. So um, they might be, for want of a better word, amateurs. They're not professional projectionists or professional technicians, but they do make sure that people have a really cinematic experience and that it looks special and people get that feeling. Yes. It's that feeling it's that, that you're chasing, isn't when it? When the lights go down and and, and, and the, the movie goes on, I mean, I feel like it's such a feeling that we almost play the the little t -t 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 of the 35 mil in our own head, even if it's not a 35 mil, because you're just so lit up by that that actual atmos atmosphere. And also, if we think about it, community cinemas, so they're screening films non-theatrically, so they've already been at the cinema, people have had the chance to go, and yet, even though we could all put the DVD on ourselves or the Blu-ray on ourselves, we still get out of our house, off our sofas, to spend a couple of quid, to spend a few hours with people in our community to share a film together in that cinematic way, and that's what we're chasing all the time. So I think that's what's super special about it and shows you that as long as it's presented well and you're giving that feeling of a cinema, which, as we've said, is a number of different things, then then that that's that's the be all and end all for me mm. yeah i agree i used to uh well very briefly run a community cinema at the lantern theater in sheffield and yeah. um did a few um screenings there and it was generally just me picking uh films that i thought were good that not enough people had seen from my own dvd collection and you know there was literally no difference to the fact that i was walking and putting a dvd in a dvd player and pressing play and watching it on my own in my house as to watching it with 45 to 50 strangers who were suddenly like, oh, I'd never 
seen this film before or I had seen this film but never on the big screen and to them it didn't particularly matter that it was a DVD they just wanted to see it in a room with a lot of people in a cinema and by cinema I mean yeah. meaning you know this is us this is what we're doing we're sharing this rather than I'm watching this on my own or with a couple of other people precisely and the, the it's that it's that it's share and share well so everybody that's a community cinema is a film fan so if they've picked a film, they want to make sure this film is um, shared with other people in the best light it can be shared. It's kind of like when you go to an interview, you're going to put your best clothes on that you can and present <laughs> the best parts of yourself. And that's what you do with a film presentation as well. So they're not, it's not slapdash at all. Um, it, 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 even though it's DIY, it's got so much soul in it, if not more. And more's riding on it because you, you're saying, I like this and this is who I this is what I relate to. You're really putting yourself out there. Mm. So you want to make sure that it's presented in the best possible way for people to, to receive it. Mm. Yeah, there's something about me that feels like um, someone who'd say something like Mark Kermode has said would be happier watching, you know, a 16 mil projection of a film that's got like frames missing and projected onto like a, like a bed sheet that's hung on a wall rather than someone doing it on a DVD player through an HD projector onto a screen that's rolled down because for them the romance is that flicker of the of the the film through the thing and it's mm. it, it it to me it just reeks of of like a little bit of in, kind of entitlement that that that's the it, that is the best possible way to them therefore it should be to everybody yeah and everybody can be at risk of that what what you know is is what you like you think that's 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 for everybody and that's just not the case is it as we as we've discussed and with Jack's example there the you know some communities just do not have access to to even films about their communities and about their areas because of this um, and because that most people in charge will think that everything they think is the right way to do things exactly and, and some people don't have access to even the most humongous blockbuster of the summer so there's up in Scotland there's something called the screen machine which is an articulated truck that drives around the highlands and uh, everybody piles into the back and watches the new releases um, and in some places it's an island mm -hmm. in some places it's it's just a really really difficult to access place um, but it's, it's also just a lorry um, <laughs> so uh, anything can be cinematic so I'm, I'm not up for things being reduced to, to being a sweet shop you know uh, on the one hand I, I kind of get it because if sometimes you go into some of the new build cinemas that don't have a projectionist that are you know it, it don't necessarily feel like a cinema they feel a little bit like a home cinema and they perhaps have not necessarily been built by people who go to the cinema very often and I can be frustrated I think um, rather than a sweet shop I've described them as a bit of a glory glorified pr prosecco bar but but at the end of the day they're still full of people that are going to the cinema and people that will talk to each other afterwards so I think as an organization cinema for all and also us personally we see the cinema as a really social space where people can get together where they can make friends they can have conversations and they can just learn about people that aren't like them they can see stories of people from all over the world all different backgrounds um and that's just so important in this day and age. I think it's more important than the building of the cinema. It's more important than the act of putting the film on. It's what you get to see and the stories of other people around the world. I think that's the thing that we need right now. We need to see what other people's lives are like. Yeah, th things are only things because of the people that go use it or attend or run it. 
everything. You know, you can have gorgeous cinema buildings, but most of them are weather spoons now. Yeah. Thankfully, they keep the 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 architecture in yeah, the there. But you know, so it's not a cinema least. anymore. It's it's a restaurant. Yeah. So it's it's about the people. So as soon as you take the people out of anything, that's when it's not the thing anymore. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I feel uh, positively enlightened um, by hearing about these things. Thank you. If your listeners liked hearing to us, listening to us, um, then have a look, uh, have a search on your podcast app for Cinema for All podcast. We've only got one episode out so far. It's about animation. It's a good one, though. Thank you. Thank you. And there's an interview with Vivian Hallas, who's the daughter of Hallas and Bachelor, that studio that made Animal Farm back in the 50s. Um, so, yeah, please subscribe and hopefully you enjoy it. We're kids. Abby and Jack, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks again to Jack and Abby for being on the show and for giving us that that interview. So, Matt, what are your kind of broader thoughts on the on Mr. Kermode's tweet and more more broadly about like I guess the the things it brings up about what cinema as like a a concept or or as like you know the ideas of cinemas as figures physical places mm. are in this day and age. Yeah, I think the first thing i i think of now having digested it all is if you're telling people they're doing something wrong you're probably the one doing it wrong Mm. that's my overarching theme about his his kind of quote but as it regards to as it kind of relates to cinema i'm someone who has you know viewed the vast majority of the films that i've seen and and everything on a smaller screen Mm. like the the idea that um people can watch as many films as possible on the exact screen size and under on the medium that the director intended is something that exists for people in an older generation where there was no home media. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people who were Mark Como's age or are Mark Como's age, if you went to the cinema in the 70s and you saw Taxi Driver and you loved it, you couldn't see it again in three months' time when it arrived on home video because there was no home video. You got to see it again if it went to a rep cinema um like you know a year or so down the line and apply that to every film that's ever released up to that point you might be like oh i've never seen rio bravo i don't want to watch it on the television that you know they show it because it's really terrible quality and the televisions are only like five inches wide or whatever and it's black and white um you know i get, only get to see rio bravo if someone's showing it in a rep cinema and the idea is that you know it kind of elevates um a lot of the uh, films that people see and the experience they had in cinemas to this kind of mythic, um, you know, kind of experience. Whereas for someone like me who kind of grew up watching VHS and not a good format, no one mm. wants VHS, no one liked VHS. It was a you know heavily compromised thing. But like I'd learn about filmmaking and 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 the language of cinema by watching movies on VHS. I. I kind of have then gone on to see some things on big screen. I love seeing things in the best presentation, but that is not the ideal for everyone. It's not accessible, like Abby and Jack were saying, to everyone. Um, So the idea of saying that, you know, if you're watching a film in a room full of like-minded people and the lights have gone down and someone just happens to be pressing play on a Blu-ray player, 
that is every bit as valid an experience as, you know, having a highly trained projectionist changing the reels and, you know, you know, there's a gas lights at the side and there's, you know, you're in the, the most beautiful boutique cinema you can imagine. Like they're both equally valid experiences. And to me, um, Mr. Como's comments didn't sit right at all after a while. Cause I felt like he was stripping people's experience of meaning. Yeah, I, I think I'm definitely in the same boat. I think ideally, the ideal way to see, I think, every movie is to see it in a cinema projected, you know, in the right aspect ratio with perfect sounds and everything like that. That's the ideal way, I think, to see pretty much every movie. Um, and I think that's that's an uncontroversial thing to say. Like, that is just the best way to see it. But that doesn't mean that, like you say, it doesn't mean that seeing it other ways is invalid, like you, most of the movies I've seen over the course of, my lifetime have been seen on TV. Uh, most of my favorite films, I've never had a chance to watch in a big screen mm-hmm. ever. And like when I have had a chance to see them, you know, it's been wonderful, you know, getting to see like the thing on a big screen at the showroom for a Halloween event, like 10 years ago remains like a real, um, a real highlight of my um, cinema going career. But you know, that not everyone's going to have that. Not everyone's going to have access to uh, the, uh, they, uh, Jack and Abby mentioned in the uh, in the interview, you know, the, the thing that Ava DuVernay said about how, you know, some cinemas, some places just don't have access to theatres. You know, you can't see Straight Outta Compton in Compton. You can't see Selma in Selma. And, you know, I think that for most people, the way in which, you know, the best way you're going to see a movie, if you're going to see it at all, is going to be on a TV screen, it's going to be streamed or it's going to be on DVD or Blu-ray. And while you can say that there are a hierarchy of what are the best ways to see things, what are the best format, for me, I think the important thing is seeing the movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've I've had uh, transcendental experiences watching movies on like a 20-inch a, a TV screen, which took five minutes to warm up because when you turned it on, it would initially just be green. But <laughs> I, I saw I saw the movie, I saw 2001 on it, and I thought, wow, this is a great work of cinema. I saw, you know, the, I saw American Graffiti on there and thought, wow, this is really cool. George Lucas, he's got something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that that is... And I don't think that those experiences are any lesser because I didn't get to see those movies on the big screen. And, and I do think that while... On a on a purely technical level, like getting rid of projectionists, I think does diminish you know the experience of being in a cinema because it means that you kind of take the heart out of cinemas as places, you know, in in a certain sense because you don't necessarily have someone who's there making sure that everything's running perfectly and that the experience is as good as possible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily cheapen the experience of people watching it. People like talking and being arseholes that maybe uh, affects it a little bit but that's kind of a a deeper societal problem Mm. i think it's you know we talked about um in the interview briefly that like no one really cares go and stand outside a cinema on a friday night when people come out say you know did you like the dcp projection on that or yeah would you Mm. prefer to be 35 mil most people the overwhelming majority of people will just not know what you're talking about yeah but the idea that having a projectionist someone who cares for the presentation like jack said and like the 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 presentation becomes paramount that you're seeing it in the right aspect ratio that it's framed correctly that everything is going to be running smoothly is something that 
is over now. It's not something that is a part of new cinemas anymore. It's something that is um, kind of fading away. And with the advances in technology and like the speed of delivering things, it doesn't have to turn up as a physical box full of reels of film anymore. It can, I'm sure as it might already be this way, but I'm sure that, um, you know, as technology gets better, you will be able to have the film streamed onto a stick or something or straight onto the screen rather than, you know, having to collect physical media and kind of arrange it all. That sounds like it's losing its soul a little bit, but, you know, when you are trying to streamline a process and you look at the process of filmmaking, going back to the oldest days of having a film, like, a you know, a camera, you have to shoot on film and then get the film developed and then mastered and printed and then send the, you know, you know, a, a suitcase full of reels of film that have to be manually changed. There's so many points of error that this could go wrong to having, uh, you know, someone press a button and Jaws comes on the screen and it looks perfect. That is 20 years from now, you know? Mm. That's something that we won't have to even think about. So the the, the loss of the projectionist is going to be... The projectionist is going to be like a preservation job uh, because, as we've discussed on this show before, like, nothing preserves film like the medium of celluloid mm. um so you know celluloid will be used to preserve films for posterity so there'll always be a place for it and there'll always be places that show it um but uh losing projectionists is an inevitability of technological progress unfortunately um and um it's kind of time that we kind of just embraced it and tried to make that the best we could rather than yeah. trying to cheapen people's experience by saying oh, you're not watching on a cinema, so it's not cinema. Mm. Yeah, it's also just kind of part of broader trends in cinema or or culture in general. Like, film isn't as central to culture as it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago or even 20 years ago. Like, people still go and see movies, and some movies are that are seen make a lot of money, but it's a kind of a, a vanishingly small number you know like it's the the superhero movies and animated movies that get made every year and it's a fairly small number of them you don't get that many movies that are kind of mid-sized hits or movies that do kind of okay but still filter through that much like you'll occasionally get a get out or a quiet place or whatever but it's not like films are the the, the be-all and end-all of culture anymore you know lots of people watch tv uh and that seems to be the ascendant medium. Maybe film will be more central again uh, in in the coming years. Maybe once superhero movies have kind of run their course, uh, if and when that ever happens, you know, you'll see a, a revival of the form as kind of an exciting, or American cinema rather, as a as an exciting form that everyone is kind of obsessing over. But that that's just not where we are now, mm. and that means that things are just gonna. Things are just going to change. How people see movies have changed dramatically, uh, even in the six and a half years we've been doing this show. Mm-hmm. Like the growth of streaming as an avenue for people watching movies uh, is is immensely bigger than it was a couple of years ago. And as a, as a distribution format for new movies, even if you know they're they're often not the best of movies, mm-hmm. uh, based on a lot of the stuff that Netflix put out is kind of vastly different and you know things have to change to adjust to technology and 
the market and things like that. And whilst that's a thing on one level quite depressing in the sense that, you know, things are are different from how they were, like, you know, when I when you and I were younger, when uh, people of the generation above us were younger, that is kind of the reality of it. And you kind of have to adjust with the times. And that means accepting that the way in which people view movies and even what counts as a cinema is going to change dramatically. You know, it already has, and it's going to change even more. Mm. Do you think how much of Mark Kermode's comments are attributed purely to nostalgia, do you think? I think I think that's a large part of it. Like, anyone who is familiar with, with Mark Kermode's work and, you know, kind of the, the his stuff on the radio, stuff he talks about, his books, a large part of that is comes from the fact that, you know, his view of what cinema is is shaped very much by his experiences growing up and going to, like, grindhouse cinemas and experiencing things that way and, and discovering movies through rep screening. So I think a lot of that is part of it. But also he is someone who has such tremendous affection for the tangible physical qualities of, of cinema, of celluloid itself. You know, he's very he's always been very... Uh, I don't want to say dismissive, but certainly very wary of digital projection and digital filmmaking, as opposed to the analog filmmaking that you know was the standard for most of the last century. And on, on some levels, you know that's that's a fair point to make. You know, it's uh, digital film cannot hold as much information as celluloid. So, as good as digital cameras are. are becoming now there's still like a pretty sizable gap between how good a or how rich a digital movie will be compared to something shot on celluloid and i think that's a kind of a a noticeable difference certainly if people are are kind of au fait with the those different processes and different formats but you know so, so there are like i think genuine concerns in there that aren't just tied into you know, looking at the world being different to how it used to be and maybe not liking the way it looks. Uh, that In some cases, a lot of the processes that are being used now are not as good as the ones that people are used to. And the change in process changes the form as well. You know, digital editing has drastically altered the way in which movies can be made, uh, often to their detriment. But, you know, it, again, it's just like the realities are, you know, are that these things, these changes have happened, they will continue to happen. And they don't have to be bad. You know, digital cameras are always getting better. Eventually, you'll maybe get a digital camera that is as good or not better than a camera that shoots on celluloid. Uh, and cinema is a is a medium that is always changing and evolving. And whether or not that's a good or bad thing is kind of still an open question and up for discussion over the, the, the years and decades ahead. Mm. But I think there's also kind of an argument for the idea of, you know, you try and focus on making the technical advances better. Mm. Uh, the example of, like, I've told this story before. I went to see Jaws on 35mm at cinema, and there were huge chunks of the film had been actually removed, like the celluloid that just cut bits straight out. Big bits yeah. of the film missing. The print looked like shit. It looked like it had been dropped in a puddle and like kicked around, dragged through a hedge. It was kind of pretty bad negative experience. Now the flip side is, you know, you get the Blu-ray and the film's been mastered and approved by like Steven Spielberg and the cinematographer and stuff. And they're like, well, yeah, I approve. This is a really great way of watching the movie. That's a good example of how like, okay, well, people are going to watch it at home. 
let's make sure they can watch it at home in the best possible way. Mm. Then like yeah. that, that that watching it on Blu-ray on a like a you know reasonable big kind of TV is much as long as the motion smoothing is turned off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we should put all the effort we put into ragging on like you know cinemas and just put it into like start a campaign to have the just the idea of motion smoothing the the the, the concept removed from human history. Yeah, because no Absolutely. one wants it. It's like VHS. No one wants it. Yeah. And, and to kind of pull it back to our our news story earlier, I, I rewatched the American Friend, the Vin Vendors movie, shot by the late Robbie Muller, and I hadn't watched that movie in about ten, fifteen years or so. And the first time I watched it again was on kind of like a small TV and on a DVD that was clearly a transfer from a not great print. Um, mm-hmm. So it was still a great movie, and it's it's, it's one of my favourite Vin Vendors movies, and I think it's a terrific interpretation of the Tom Ripley character who's one of my favourite characters in all of literature but it wasn't optimum but now this time I could watch the uh, 4k restoration of it that was made a couple of years ago that was overseen by uh, Vin Vendors and his uh, his company to make sure it looked as good as it did in the old days and it was cleaned up but not like smoothed out you know they they didn't try and make it look kind of eerie and unnatural it still looks like a movie that was shot in 1976 or whenever uh and so it's great it's a i wouldn't say it's a better experience because obviously like a lot of that's tied into the first time i watched it was when i was really getting into movies and wanting to see all of these movies that i could but it certainly felt like this was closer to how the movie should have been should be seen than the way that i saw it and it certainly feels like a better way for people to discover the movie now than uh, than how I discovered it. So, you know, like, technology absolutely doesn't have to have a, a detrimental effect on the cinematic experience. It just has a, a, a... It makes it different. And different is kind of... Is value neutral, you know? It it's, could be can be good and can be bad. Hmm, yeah. I like that. Different is shade neutral, did you say? A value neutral. A value neutral. I like that. That's uh, you know, that's probably the cleverest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and we end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listener, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Oh, well, I'm going to recommend an album um, this week, um, and it's kind of recommended with some sadness um, and the uh, singer-songwriter and producer and all-round good egg Richard Swift passed away this week Mm. Um, most people won't know who he is but you'll know the bands he's played and he played most recently in The Shins and The Black Keys as kind of Mm. like a touring musician but he's also a producer produced stuff uh, for people like Sharon Manetton and Foxy Jen and uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and The Night Sweats I think he did um, the last two albums for those guys and uh, he's someone that kind of accidentally stumbled across on a kind of late night music show um, I can't remember the name of it but he kind of played uh, a couple of songs um, on this show and I was like there those were the days where I was like oh I will buy that CD uh, mm. <laughs> we're talking about physical media and things um, I actually did and went and bought the CD an album called Dressed Up for the Letdown which was released in 2006 and it is a quite beautiful collection of songs um with a kind of uh um 
classic uh, kind of 60s pop sensibility, um, but very much with a kind of like a modern edge to it um, and shows his skills as a producer. Um, and I kind of love every single song on it. Uh, I would recommend, um, I think it was the lead single, a song called Kisses for the Misses, uh, which is um, kind of jaunty, but also super sad. Um, and yeah, it kind of describes accurately how I feel about the news this week. He died at kind of 41, kind of tragically young. Um, and the, all I knew about it was last week there, or two weeks ago, there was a story saying Richard Swift's super ill and he can't afford his medical bills. Um, let's do a GoFundMe. And then, you know, mm. two weeks, two weeks later, you know, find out that he didn't make it. And, you know, that's a terrible way to go out. And I think everyone should, uh, seek this record out. It's on Spotify and Apple music and all those places, because it is a, uh, incredible testament to the talent that that man had. Um, and, uh, obviously, yes, this all lives on beyond him, which doesn't make it any less sad. Um, mm. but, um, it seems to be one of the albums that no one else I've ever met has heard. Um, <laughs> so I always try and recommend it when people say, you know, what's an album that you seem to like that no one else, uh, kind of knows about. And that is always my choice. Richard Swift dressed up for the letdown from 2006. Seek it out. Um, you will not regret it. Yeah. I'll certainly be checking that out this week. I, would definitely describe myself as one of those people uh, you kind of described at the beginning, someone who had not heard of Richard Swift prior to his death, but when all the obituaries came out and listed like all the artists he'd worked with, thought, oh, I like pretty much all of these people. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so I'll definitely be checking that album out. Uh, this week it was the 4th of July over here in the US, and uh, I used that opportunity, you know, with having a day off to catch up on some movies and uh, this is going to be kind of a Matryoshka doll of a recommendation because I ended up having like a th- the th- best movie viewing day I've had in a long time. So I started off with the documentary Won't You Be My Neighbour which is about Mr Rogers for people who are from England who don't know who Mr Rogers is. He was kind of like the American Gareth Southgate. <laughs> he was uh, a, a, a kind of a, a, a minister who hosted this kids TV show in for about 40 years from the kind of the 60s through to the early 2000s uh, who was this this kind of beloved uh, figure of public television and the documentary does a really great job of establishing who he was in context and why his work was so impactful Uh, and I think a lot of people talk about it as an emotional experience certainly a lot of people who grew up watching Mr. Rogers' uh, Neighbourhood the, the TV show and who kind of have a knowledge of the man himself find it very emotional. I went in basically just knowing that Mr. Rogers was a person uh, and I came out of it with a with tears streaming down my face. It's a very, very sweet and lovely and emotional movie. Then I went to see Paul Schrader's First Reformed, which is uh, not a movie that will leave you with, with particularly warm feelings, but is an excellent work of, of cinema. Stars Ethan Hawke as a priest who uh, is asked by one of his parishioners to uh, play by Amanda Seyfried to comfort her husband who is a kind of a a member of the kind of green movement who wants his wife to have an abortion because he thinks it's morally incompatible with his beliefs to bring a child into the world given our you know the state of the environment and it kind of gets grimmer from there it's a uh, it's a very stark and austere and draining movie about a man of faith being presented with this question of you know the the state of the world and what it means to bring life into it and you know how to what is the moral thing to do when being presented with people who you know are responsible in some way for that 
uh, and it is just a vibrant movie. You know, I, I, I compare it to Schrader's first movie, Blue Collar, which was probably one of the best movies about America in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this feels like one of the best movies about what America is like in 2018. And I think uh, people should seek it out when it eventually hits the UK or streaming services. I think it's an absolutely uh, incredible work of cinema and then i ended the day by watching hannah gadsby's stand-up special um mm, nanette it's a stretch yeah, yeah. which is a has, it has jokes but mm-hmm. it also is kind of like a a furious angry i mean righteously angry account of what it is to be a woman in the world to be gay in the world and i think it is one of just one of the most impactful works of art i've seen in a really long time. And uh, I think also just like, I think it articulates, particularly when she talks about diversity in the arts and things like that, I think she articulates kind of a manifesto for what I think you and I have talked about on this show over the years. So it was kind of really cathartic and uplifting to watch something that made me think, oh, she said everything I've been trying to say for like six years, but more succinctly and with much more kind of uh, integrity than I think I could ever muster. So... I think it is, uh, I think that's just, it's absolutely just one of the best things I've seen all year. And I think everyone should check it out. It's on Netflix everywhere. Mm, not an easy watch, um, mm. especially if you're a white male. Um, yes. Um, but you will go away from that. We should go away um, feeling like two things. One is that you need to pull your fucking socks up. And two, mm. uh, that Picasso is wildly overrated. Yes, that was uh, certainly not the thing I was expecting to have uh, a really a, a really kind of powerful dissection of uh, everything wrong with Picasso. Mm, yeah. But a, a, one that I think I think weirdly I needed. Yeah, I mean I can speak as someone who has a degree in art history um mm. which is you know something I share uh, with Hannah Gadsby and um yeah, you know I I certainly didn't think cubism <laughs> <laughs> and Picasso was overrated but now I do. I should have paid more attention. <laughs> I should have looked at it from a different viewpoint, which is ultimately the point of the entire show. Yeah, so everyone check out those three things if you get a chance, but definitely check out Nanette. It's available right now, and you should absolutely seek it out. Thank you for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or all the usual places. Please leave us a review and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me.